The Free For All Roundtable. Round one. On round one, say good morning to Tim Hudak, former leader of Ontario's Conservatives, now at the Ontario Real Estate Association. Laura Babcock is here from Power Group Communications and host of The O Show. Mark Warner, international trade lawyer. Good morning to everybody. Let's good start on a, on a lighter thing. Sometimes when we've just had a conversation, I think we can you know dig into the topic right away. Uh, we were just talking to a recently retired woman. They've been walking at... A a mall, the Vaughn Mills Mall, for many, many years, and they were used to, you know, they used to have access, and now they've been told not until 9:30 when the stores open. Uh, Mark Warner, you're the lawyer on the panel. Maybe it's a liability issue, but she says there's never been any trouble in the past. Yeah, I, I mean it's a private space, so I mean they can do what they want with it. Um, I don't know whether they have to have security guards and uh, operating earlier, and they just decided they don't want to do that anymore. Or that other people are occupied. You know, everybody, I don't know whether it's something that accommodation they're able to make in the past, but, you know, lights and all the other stuff they can't anymore. It's hard to say, um, but it is, people do need to remember that malls are, are, aren't are really public spaces. They're, you know, privately owned. And so the sense of ownership sometimes we have over a mall really isn't, uh, isn't uh, accurate. Right. But then there's also the brand for the mall. And I'd have to thank Laura Babcock. Uh, branding yourself as a place where seniors are welcome to come and walk and then maybe later have a coffee and go shopping is probably better than, you know, being this level of persnickety. This is such a dumb decision by this mall. I used to work at a mall, I used to open up a store early in the morning. We had a walking program in our mall. And you know what? The whole point in business is to get people to see your business and see your products. So the idea of taking eyeballs off of your store windows makes zero sense. If I were one of the merchants in that mall, not only would I be calling them and say, hello, please, we like the foot traffic in front of our store, but I would do a special promotion for mall walkers to thank them for being awesome. And I'd put it in my my store window and get them to come in at 9.30 when I open. I mean, what is this mall thinking about? What a bad look. Yeah, and Tim, just to wrap up the discussion, um, I realize it's not an easement or anything. Nobody has a right, but malls are kind of the public square these days, and I think they would do better to make sure that it's more accessible. Sure. I mean, it's a nice to do. It's not a, a must do. You'd think this would hit them a bit in the business. Like you mentioned, the morning coffee shops, a little bit of grocery shopping uh, as you head home. But, you know, ultimately, these places uh, make the call that they think's right for their business and their public image. Eh, if I were in that case, I think I kind of like the traffic. Much more serious story this morning is about a report that came out that found over a period of eight years, 192 prisoners died in provincial jails. I'll come back to you, Lauren, start with you. Um, it's interesting. I've received messages this morning from people saying, who cares? But 25% of any people who are in the prison system right now are convicted of absolutely nothing. Uh, actually, no, I think it's the reverse. 25% of the people who are in a provincial jail uh, are guilty. 75% of them are awaiting trial. So the idea that 192 over a period of eight years died, I think is pretty scary. That's terrifying. And actually, as I read the story, the it said that all the deaths could be considered preventable. So what the heck is going on? I can tell you the Barton Street jail in Hamilton, so many inmates were dying that the family started to put crosses out in front of the jail property. So people going by could realize what was happening in these jails. Uh, whether it's, you know, as they said in, in the stories, more training needed this side or the other thing. There's certainly drugs that get into the jails. And we know about the, opi the opioid crisis on our street and the people who are dying from that. I mean, we these people are not in there 
for a death sentence. They're in there for whatever sentence they've been given, for whatever crimes they've done. And they should not have their lives put at risk in this way. We need to take it seriously. Tim Hudak, according to the figures, drug overdoses accounted for the largest share of inmate deaths. That was followed. Some people died of natural causes. Now, imagine dying of natural causes in a prison facility while awaiting trial if you're innocent. Uh, there were suicides, and then there were six homicides. What do you make of this? Well, I mean, good thing they shone the light on this. I, I would not have been aware that uh, the situation was was that uh, bad. You know, on on the drug side, it's curious how I guess it's that easy to get the drugs in the facility and have that many who are uh, overdosing. Likely a reflection of a population that is is living on the edge. But the, the real cause here, though, John, the main point I want to make is the wheels of justice grind so slowly. There seems to be such discretion given to uh, to judges and how long trials take, the gathering of evidence. That's when I was a leader of the opposition. The cost of our justice system and how much they've increased compared to actually getting results and getting trials done was abhorrent. A greater use of uh, electronics, a greater use of, uh, uh, of of remote. You need the two police officers each and every time. There are a lot of cost savings that speed things up and help avoid some of these problems. Mark Warner, your thoughts? Well, it's terrible. I mean, it's not surprising. I mean, we have a, you could do a similar study of people who are held in detention for immigration facilities, and I think you'd see an elevated number there as well. Um, look, the, the drug part, I guess the question which you're balancing there is how far, how hard do you make the uh, the searches of people coming in to visit inmates or, or people who are in prison and uh, versus, uh, you know, potential uh, and that sort of thing. But it is hard to understand and when you see the drug toxicity part, um, you know, that, that does seem to me the deaths from drug toxicity, you sort of wonder, how does that get in there? And is there a way you could deal with that? I share Tim's concern about speeding up justice. I, I think the culprit there is probably more the charter than anything else. And that's a question that we keep putting off having a conversation about in this country for, for a while now after 40 year old uh, institution. But the way the charter has been interpreted by courts makes it very hard for the wheels of justice to grind quickly in Canada. And that's a problem. Let me stick with you for a moment, Mark Warner. And we're having some signal issues this morning on your audio, but I hope we're going to be okay. Group of Alberta lawyers have launched a petition. They do not want an Indigenous history course that they've been mandated to take to be mandatory. Uh, you'd be better placed than anybody on the panel to know what is mandatory education for lawyers and whether or not this applies. Uh, but what's your view? Well, it's been very complicated, you know, uh, controversial here in Ontario. The last go round of the of uh, the election for the what we call the benchers of the law society, uh, um, we had a, a group of people put together a slate to oppose the mandatory compulsory uh, sort of um, statement of interest of uh, around diversity and equity in your practice. So this this isn't new. I mean, I you know I I I, I sort of wonder when you when, when you go through it. I cut the, complete my my um, portals <laughs> my training for this as i said at the end of the year do you really get people to think more of indigenous issues or diversity and equity when you sort of force them uh with their very busy practices and lives to uh to sort of watch these videos and to take these courses and i you know th this is not my approach to equality i think we talked about this last week john i i know this is a younger generation's idea of how you approach equality i'm a structural person i'm not a behavioral person i have never sought to change what people think in their heads so i i'm not i've never been on board for this particular kind of approach to dealing with 
quote, equity issues. Okay, but Tim Hudak, uh, indigenous people are overrepresented in the criminal justice system, so maybe it would help for prosecutors and uh, defend, def- you know, defense lawyers to know a little bit more. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a, a balance here that can be achieved when this education is practical, it's uh, fact-based, it shines a, a light uh, on, on real problems. When you cross the line, if it's indoctrination and if it's lecturing, it's not going to be as, as useful. But let me give you an example here in Ontario, John. You were very kind to do a lot of coverage when the Ontario Real Estate Association uh, did a review of housing and the discrimination that exists, particularly, particularly when it comes to Aboriginals and Black Canadians, especially in the rental market. So one of the things from our report that we've called for is for our regulator to have mandatory education on these issues, to call to attention to all the realtors in every city and town across the province of this discrimination, what your obligation to do is to fight against it, and to say to a landlord who tells you you can't rent to somebody because they're black, well, I, I don't want your business then, and to shut down that kind of thing. So I do believe there's a, an important role we can play. Just make sure it has a clear purpose and is a practical element to it. I want to hop to something else, but Laura Babcock, this is totally in your wheelhouse. It's all about how this being the 1st of February, the price freeze on Loblaw's no-name products is now off the table. They brought it about in October with much fanfare. People were somewhat jaundiced about the whole thing. They said in a statement, we can say with confidence our profits aren't the reason for food inflation. Our grocery food margins are flat. Suppliers' costs to us continue to climb, pushing prices higher. They say we we froze prices when costs continued to climb. We took a stand on the price freeze because we knew that the price of food was a huge concern for many Canadians. Okay, so judging this from a marketing perspective, Laura Babcock, did they make a difference or is everybody just groaning? Why do they keep hurting themselves with this brand? I mean, it just, it's unbelievable. If you look at the unforced errors of Loblaws over the last couple of years, can you think of a more singularly hated grocery brand or spokesperson than Galen Weston in this country? I mean, he has personified what people see as profiteering in the pandemic, as gross profits for these, these grocery stores. Now, they can say all they want, that their food prices, whatever, their profits are flat, but people look at how they're doing as a company, they look look at the wealth that they're generating and have been through the pandemic, and there isn't the sympathy for it. I mean, so to come out and say, we've stopped this thing, I don't think a lot of people were really believing the goodwill of the price freeze in the first place. It looked more like a marketing effort. Uh, But for them to now come out and announce that it's stopping in the cold days of February when inflation and food prices are, what, up 11% for people, I think it's just nuts. They could afford to keep this program in place and build some goodwill. Well, that's it. Tim Hood. I think the win for Loblaws would be to announce we were going to suspend this program today, but we're going to continue. Yeah, yeah I'm curious um, what the trade-off would have been between how much more revenue they're going to bring in through raising prices compared to the, the damage it took to an already pretty badly shaken brand that goes back to the, the bread-fixing crisis and then all the mistakes during COVID. Uh, this is, to an extent, another example of no good deed goes unpunished. They at least were trying to climb out of that hole. But, man, this is a price to pay when you go out and announce it and call more attention to your prices going up. All right. Mark Warner, I don't, don't know if you buy no name, but what are your thoughts? Um, I, my thoughts is that the uh, you know that uh, that, that uh, the whole consumer grocery pricing stuff is something that needs to be really 
really um, dealt with beyond the level of gimmicks. This is interesting. I mean, the Competition Bureau in Ottawa has launched a probe. I know I've sort of have been a, a traditional no frills Loblaw shopper and I've started to shop at Metro and come to my surprise to find out that per unit pricing is not mandatory in Canada. Very hard for consumers to do anything in groceries. But as always, Canadians have to get upset and get angry and stay angry and stay angry at the not the gimmicks, but the real issues, which is which is how we let groceries price products and and disclosure and trying transparency and all of that and so i'm not one for gimmicks i'm one for canadians getting angry and staying angry because that's how countries get consumer protection laws to work thank you all good to have you this morning tom uh, tim hudak laura babcock and mark warner catch the round table round one at 7 45 round two at 8 45 weekday mornings on more in the morning news talk 1010 toronto